Our uh, text for today is 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my uh, true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about so that they can conf- that, or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, slave traders, liars, and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so... Uh, in talking about Titus, and you know we're doing this series on uh, pastoral letters, we kind of uh, noted that Titus started out with this paradox about a guy from Crete saying all Cretans are liars. So the uh, funny paradox, and Paul has this weird thing where he starts with uh, you know his normal opening, and he's almost immediately to uh, one of these kind of paradoxical sayings of the day that has significant implications for how we think about scripture. So you ready for the one that's uh, in this one? Can adherence to the law be illegal? Can adherence to the law be illegal? Now this one, this one's a bit of a barn burner. If you're a fan of paradoxes, counterintuitive conclusions, and or very close readings of Greek words. If you don't like that, apologies in advance. So yeah, in Titus, we were talking about Epimenides' paradox, and it was that old school Greek paradox, a guy from Crete says all Cretans are liars, and then you kind of do the thought experiment, and you're like, can he be right? And if he is, does it mean that he's wrong? Because if he's right, then he's telling the truth, and yada, yada, yada. But the point of it, in Titus at least, was to say, if you're thinking about what it looks like to um, administer the church well, and if you're thinking about what it looks like to live out the Christian life well, you can't just rely on your own words or perspectives about things. What, what, you, what you need to rely on is the model of and the person of Jesus Christ, right? And so we kind of went through all the different things that were in Titus that have been used to shore up one vision of the law, and it turns out when you look at the Greek on them, they mean something totally different, right? So we think that it's about doctrine, but really the Greek word for doctrine there means less like a set of rules or orders and means more like kind of a set of principles for how you engage other folk. We think that um, teaching, uh, that it's about the way that you teach someone. Or for example, uh, there's that concept of rebuke in Titus, which has been used, uh, you know, so often to tell people how wrong they were about things. And, you know, know, Titus is talking about the idea of how you open up a conversation with someone, yada, yada, yada. The the point of all this is not to kind of nerd out on a thought problem about, you know, thinking about how language works and how the law works and how doctrine works. The point of this, as you've heard me say a million times before, is that we want to think about these pastoral letters through the frame 
of the idea that the truth is not a proposition, it's a person. It's Jesus. And so we want to think about doctrine and law as first and foremost stemming from the character of Jesus. And so, you know, the reason I get so riled up about it is I think that these pastoral letters have pretty big implications for how we think about the faith. They have pretty big implications for what it means to think about and build and edify God's kingdom. And they have pretty big implications for how we think about questions like law and doctrine. Because I don't know, like, I think basically, despite the way most folks read uh, the, the, these letters, that the kind of doctrine of the church they imply is don't worry too much about doctrine. Simply set your sights on following Jesus. And so, you know, uh, the, despite how folks kind of typically read these pastoral letters, which is, is a kind of set of elaborate codes about what good leaders of the church are supposed to do and not do, when you kind of unpack them and open them up, I think it's saying something much more interesting about the character of law and what it means for us to conform to the law and to follow the law. And it even kind of makes this weird conclusion that uh, following the law is, in many instances, illegal. Now, if you're an evangelical kid, uh, you have grown up talking about, at some point, law versus grace. And you could, you know, any evangelical kid in the room could basically fill out the contours of that debate. And the debate usually goes something like this, like, the law is something that God gave us that is good, and it has authority because God said it, and we don't need to ask questions about it, we just need to follow it and comply with it, because God wrote it down for us. And so, like, the law is clear, and the problem is that uh, though the law is perfect and clear, we are not, and so... Grace is the kind of thing that fills in, and uh, I don't know, it's like God giving us extra credit uh, for the, all the stuff that we can't kind of do in the law. And so the law is kind of good and self-evident and authoritative on its own, and if it wasn't, it wouldn't be God's law. I mean, that's at least how, even in my evangelical church, we were taught to think about grace. And of course, for, I don't know, the last two sermon series, I've been making this point about grace, that grace is much bigger than just suspension from the penalty. Grace is the very foundation of the universe, right? That God imagined you and didn't, didn't think the universe would be complete without you and creates you and delights in you and takes joy in you and that these are elements of grace too, that even that you breathe and that you have relatives and friends in a church community, those also are extensions of grace. And so, I don't know, like part of the point of this series is to kind of fill out the other side of the question, which is to fill out our understanding of law, of what exactly doctrine and teaching look like. And it turns out, to quote a Facebook status, it's, it's complicated. So, okay, Paul starts, as I talked about last week, like Paul starts these letters with these loaded terms, right? So you read the introduction at first and you're like, ah, oh, this is kind of straightforward, dear X, Y, or Z. And then there's always a word or two in there that when you look at them, they have kind of pregnant significance that you may not have seen at the very beginning. So Paul starts this one out and, you know, again, these letters are a pair. Most folks think they're kind of written at the same time. They embody a very similar philosophy of the church. Timothy and Titus may well have known each other. This is kind of Paul functioning as a mentor to both, and he says, well, look, Paul, an apostle of uh, Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So it seems like a pretty straightforward opening, but the, the you know, and Paul was tight with Timothy and, and, and Titus, and the openings are kind of parallel, but I want you to draw your eye to that word command in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of of God our Savior. Now, uh, Paul's got similar advice, like I said, for Timothy and, and, and Titus, but in this instance, the word that is translated as command in the phrase apostle by command is a little bit different here. The word here for command does not mean like order or compulsion. 
the word for command is epitagen, and it means to be made fitting to a situation. So like when you say a situation demanded X, that's the kind of sense of this word. It's the idea that Paul is not, it's not necessarily ordering uh, Paul to be an apostle, that Paul is fitting for or uh, appropriate to the situation and kind of doing the best that uh, he's got with what God charges him with. So when Paul writes that he is an apostle by command, he's not emphasizing that God made him do it. He's saying that God used him because he was a fitting or suitable vessel. Now there's this theme that starts to open up throughout the beginning of this letter, which is that Paul's going to pretty consistently be making this case that the character of the law is not about authority, it's about effect. The character of the law is about, so a, a command here is not, God said you have to go be a, an apostle. A command here, in the sense that Paul opens it, is God says, hey, you know, you're what I've got in this situation and you're going to work well. So Paul's starting to work out this theme about how we think about the law. And if you really kind of dig into it, it's woven all throughout the beginning of this letter, exactly like all that stuff about the credibility of language was woven all throughout the beginning of Titus. So look at verse 3. As I ver- urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Crazy, crazy translations. Okay, you all recognize most of these words because we talked about it in in Timothy. Like we talked about doctrine as kind of around teaching. We talked about that stuff a few weeks ago. The word translated as command here, though, is different. It's not the opening word for command when it says that uh, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines the word there is parangelo and it means to transmit an order it's like a term with the military origin it's like passing something through proper channels so like Paul has these kind of two different words that are translated as command and the kind of opening question that this letter sets up the kind of question that it's underneath all the beginning of it is something like this what is it that makes Paul and Timothy the suiting and proper channels for transmitting God's word? What is it that makes them fitting to the situation and able to transmit or convey what God wants the church to know? Well, we get some picture of it if you look at Paul's diagnosis of the problem behind the people who are teaching false doctrine. And the thing is, He's not necessarily that what, you know, maybe, you know, like even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Like Paul's not focusing in on any specific element of the false doctrine. He's not honing in on that like he does in other contexts. What's he saying is wrong with false doctrine here? It's weird. It causes people, what? To speculate. It causes people to speculate instead of advance God's work is how the translation works here. Now, the the word for speculation is a funny word. It's called zetasis, and it means something like, and if you've ever sat around a table at the wooden nickel and argued about whether UNC or Duke is better, you know Zetasis. Like, Zetasis is this, like, love of delving deeply into stupid controversies that there's no answer to. Okay, that's Zetasis. So, like, everybody's got their Zetasis. I imagine Mason could take us on a long Zetetic dialogue on certain computer languages or that, I don't know, you know, I mean, like, think about all the little things that each one of us really loves and gets into and digs. And when you get around your friends who do it, you could talk forever about it. But ultimately, it doesn't really do very much or advance very much. It's just like something that you talk about because it's fun. Well, okay, so I guess what Paul's kind of saying is the people who are false teachers in the church, they may be right, they may be wrong, but what they love is creating 
meaningless controversies. What they love is talking about stuff that is fun for them to talk about. What they love is, I don't know, maybe you've seen this before in a church, something like uh, endless, uh, taking pleasure in endless debates about theological minutia. Like, you know, Beth went to a small Christian liberal arts college where everyone would spend every Friday night talking about predestination and like different views of predestination and they'd dig into it forever. And like, that's the tasis. That is like a debate that we can't solve, but we don't really know that the scripture is complex on and people can spend endless amounts of time on it. And like Paul is noticing that where there are false teachers, they do not think about, and the word for work here is not like God's works. The word for work here is a word, you know, it's oikonomian. Remember that one? It's like the household affairs of the church. They're thinking about these stupid debates instead of the household affairs of the church, of building up the church. And, you know, like, so what, if, if that's the case, Paul's like, what's wrong with false teachers? Well, they focus on trivialities at the expense of things that are, like, real, at the expense of building up God's church. The kind of motivation is the thing that's wrong here. So, like, what's wrong with the genealogy, for example? And, and don't we need some myths to get by? And, like, there's all these interpretations of what Paul's mad at in endless genealogy. Like, maybe it's Jewish interpretive practices who are, like, X was born from Y, was taught by Z, and therefore is credible. Maybe it's the kind of pagan thing that, like, one god begat another god, begat another god, gave us a tradition. I don't know. Like, it could be that's what the genealogy is that Paul's talking about. It could be that that's what the myths that Paul is are talking about. I don't think it matters. Like, the point is, there are some people who will respond to what Jesus demands of them and respond to the needs of community and love. And there are some people that will engage in endless debates that make it impossible for them to really figure out what's going on and who will enjoy the process of fighting and debating more than they enjoy the process of advancing the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying, whatever that thing is that causes you to kind of zetetically focus around a specific theological question, that thing is getting in the way of doing the work of the kingdom because the folks who do the work of the kingdom in the church, well, their point is to build up God's church. So Paul's point about arguments about law and doctrine is pretty simple. When we talk in terms of like, what's the right interpretation or how would we judge it or how would we validate them or how would we understand them? Paul's point is that we need to turn to the kind of essence and goal of the law. We need to kind of put the faith in what Jesus Christ has revealed to us and put our eyes and our minds and our hearts on doing the work of God's kingdom in the world. And so it's not that the law matters or even doctrine matters on its own term. That is the point Paul's making here. He's kind of making the point that like, I don't know, when we think about law, what do we think about? We think about something that is clear and written down and you have to comply with. And the point is, there's not a lot of interpretation built into the idea of, of the law. It just kind of is or isn't. And a judge tells you or a police officer tells you whether you meet or don't meet it. And there's a penalty and it's like cut and dry. But what does Paul say here? Paul says that when we think about the character of doctrine and law, what does it say in verse 5? The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So like, I don't know, Paul is saying something different here about the character of law. It's not like how we normally think about law. This is not like, you know, click it or ticket. You know, this is something that is a, a, a lot deeper question here. And he's saying like, I don't know, like when we normally think about the law, what do we think? We're like, is the body that produced the law legitimate? You know? And is the law being interpreted accurately? And does a behavior in question violate it? So when we think about religious law, we're like, does this uh, comply with the Bible? Do we understand the thing that is asking of us? And is the person, um, you know, uh, complying with it 
or not complying with it. And Paul's like, look, that's not how we should think about the law. When you think about the law, it's the goal that matters, the telos. That's a great Greek word that we've talked about before. It means like goal and end. And his point is, when you want to measure a teacher or you want to measure the law or you want to measure doctrine, you shouldn't really focus on like the clarity or authority or the force of the law or doctrine that matters. That's the kind of thing that might draw you into endless debates. Paul says, basically, you should look at the law and ask, is the goal good and does the law achieve it? Is the goal good and does the law achieve it? The word for command here, like so telos is the goal or end. The word for command here is perangelo. It's like the other ones. It means comes through the right channels. And I don't know, like Paul is basically going to go to great lengths in the letter to be like, I'm not exactly the right channel. Like immediately after he finishes up this thing about thinking about the goal of the law and what the law is supposed to do and the idea that you're supposed to transmit the law, what does he say? I'm the worst sinner of all. Like, I've done more things to offend and hurt the church. This is not about me. This is not about my own credibility. This is about what Jesus Christ is revealing through me. This is about the goal and, and, and the purpose that Jesus Christ is fulfilling in each one of us. And, like, it's a totally different model of authority that Paul is suggesting here than the one we normally think about when we think about the law. I mean, you know, imagine if you could get out of a speeding ticket by being, like, the goal of traffic regulation, uh, is it legitimate? Is there a collective state interest in traffic regulation that outweighs the autonomy of the individual? Uh, do speed limit signs achieve their end? And like that law would be chaos if we were constantly walking around asking whether or not in the kind of normal sphere of law, whether or not we had to comply because we uh, agreed with the goal and thought that the law achieved its end. Of course, it would be like really difficult to imagine what society would look like because, you know, basically democracy works because there's a legitimate body that makes a law and we follow it. But Paul's like, look, when it comes to the church, when it comes to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the law and the rules and the doctrines are not goods in and of themselves. They can only be measured by their goals and our ability to realize them. And what is the goal of the law here? The goal of the law here, he says it awfully clearly in verse 5 is agape. The goal of the law is unconditional love. The measure for the law, the thing the law aims at, the telos of the law, the end and means of the law is love. And if a law's doctrine and motive and result is love, it is a good law. And if a doctrine's, if a law or doctrine's motive and result and end is not love, it is a bad law. Here's the thing. Doesn't that seem arbitrary? Like, I get that we want the law to advance love. I get it. But like what, you know, like we talked about last week, like what is, what embodies love? What, what does love look like? How do we know? How can we make decisions together? Well, look, Paul is, Paul's doing something I think that's really slick, really clever, and honestly, really theologically beautiful here. He says, the law can't be measured on its own. The goal of the law is love. And then he asks kind of, how do we get to that goal? How do you know that we're in the direction of that goal? And he says three things that you need to know about that. He says three things that are things that we talked about in Titus. So, katharos, kalos, and anipakritu, which I know you all are... You got it in your back pocket. But really, like Paul's saying, if you want to know how we get to love in the law, it is what? Purity, beautiful goodness, and sincerity. Purity, beautiful goodness, and sincerity. The goal of love in the law can be achieved if and only if, to use a very precise logical operator, 
we have purity of heart, beautiful goodness of conscience, and sincere faith. Those are the conditions. Purity of heart I talked about a, a decent bit uh, last week. Uh, remember that thing like God was going to make his people pure. And the word for that, katharos, is to like purge out all the divisions. So it's like the ideal state of God's people in Titus was that God's people are united. They're purged of any divisions and differences. It's the root for our word catharsis. Like if you've had a terrible day and you come home and you kind of spill it all out and you feel better, it's, that's what Paul's talking about. Imagine in, in Titus that God's people got rid of all those divisions so that they could be unified. But what he says in regard to the law is, if you think about the law, think about your heart. And if your heart is divided, if your heart is in some way moved towards different purposes instead of unified towards advancing the church, that is a measure of the goodness of the law. And a law or doctrine that produces division of heart or is produced by division of heart cannot meet the ends of agape. Same thing with this idea of beautiful goodness of conscience. Last week I talked about the awesome Greek word kala, which I have a particular individual investment in for some odd reason. Here Paul talks about the, the beautiful and good that come together in our conscience. And the word for conscience there is syndesis, which means knowing and seeing together with. And I don't know, like, I love this. I seriously, I love this concept. Paul's like, if you want to achieve the goal of love in the law, ready? Our minds need to be aligned with what is beautiful and what is good. Our minds need to be aligned, not just what produces what utility or a good outcome. Our minds need to be aligned, not just what is appealing to us. Our minds need to look for those places where the footprint of Jesus Christ is on our doctrine and law, where what is beautiful and what is good aligns perfectly with a sense of what creates the best for us spiritually and in terms of utility, that our our hearts need to be pure, purged of any difference, and that our consciences need to be aligned around what is beautiful and good. And the third condition for Paul is sincere faith. And the word for sincerity is totally rad. It's anipocritu, which means, all right, so and means not, and hypocrinomai is the root that we get our word hypocritical from. All right, so hupo is under, crino means choosing. But Paul's saying, look, our faith cannot be hypocritical. When we think about what it means to apply the law, we got to think about a law that advances love without putting us at cross purposes with other possible interests based in love. That there is a kind of unity that is built into the Christian who's pursuing the love of Christ and that pursuing the love of Christ is the rule and the measure for what counts as good doctrine and good law. And like, look, like, I don't know about you, but for me, it really changes how we think about the law because instead of saying, look, the law is written as it is and we defend it or don't defend it on the basis of its legitimacy and it's been interpreted in scripture as X and the tradition of the church says Y and the consequence of not following it is Z. Paul says, no, junk that. Here's the thing. Does the law aim at love? Does it achieve the goal of love? And the measures for how we best do it are that our hearts are pure and that they are undivided and that our consciences are focused around the person of Jesus Christ and that in enforcing and embracing and endorsing that doctrine, we do not become hypocrites. That's it. That for Paul is the way of judging the character of law that has met the measure of love. And I don't know about you, but I think that really changes how we should think about law. You know, it's like, I don't know, we couldn't do it outside of the kingdom of God. Just imagine the cost of changing all those billboards and bumper stickers that say, buckle up, it's the law, to saying something like, buckle up, it's the law, presuming that you agree that the goal of traffic safety is good, and if you think that this billboard advances that goal. I mean, it would be totally incomprehensibly expensive and 
uh, the billboards would be confusing, etc. But the point is, when we think about law, it's not just how we think about law in the context of, of the government, in the context of the, of the kingdom, the way we think about the law is that, is the goal good, are the means good, and do we think about the kind of uh, person that is coming to the table to talk about that law or doctrine as having a heart that is a certain way, a mind that is a certain way, and a faith that is uh, without hypocrisy and sincere. And that's the thing, like, what is Paul's whole critique over and over and over? Like, he's looking at people who have a position of authority in the religious establishment, who have a view of law that says that it's basically self-executing, it's written down, it's cut and dried, it's binding, and so follow it. And he looks each one of them in the eye and says, the person of Jesus Christ is so much greater than any law or doctrine that it could be written down, that Jesus and Jesus' love are the new principles through which we judge law. And because of that, in order to understand what we're supposed to do, we have to think about who we are in relationship to Jesus, what is going on with our heart, whether or not our conscience is aligned with the beautiful goodness of Jesus Christ and whether or not we're pursuing it without engendering a kind of hypocrisy. And I don't know, like, if you think about law that way, a lot of stuff for me and Paul starts to fall into place. And one of the things that falls into place is, uh, I don't know, uh, this, this one doesn't even appear in the lectionary, friends. And the commentaries on verse 8 here are, are kind of silly to me, to be honest. But the, uh, I, the, uh, let's see, the NIV, I looked at it translated as, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Anybody got anything different? We know, yeah, we know the law is good if one uses it legitimately. Anybody got another? Lawfully. Lawfully. See, Tamsin, yeah, absolutely. The Greek there is exactly as Tamsin said it, which unsurprising. It says, the sentence says, ready for this, the law is good, like beautiful and good. It uses the word callous there, if it is used lawfully. It's not, it doesn't separate the terms. Like there's not a term for legitimate or a term for proper and a term for law. And you know, like Paul in the whole, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is no dummy. Like they're the same word. The law is good if we use it lawfully. You know, it's a tautology. Like it's the kind of thing that would cause most of us, if we're, you know, grading a paper or listening to someone to push our glasses up on our nose and say, well, I don't think you understand the problems of circular logic. How could the law be used lawfully? After all, by its nature... Right. I mean, like, but he's saying the law is good if it's used lawfully. Now, I don't know. This is not about the difference between like a code and whether or not the code is legitimate. I don't think it's about what, what, what's proper. I don't think it's what, about whether or not you use the law in a way that prescribes or breaks the law. I mean, like, I don't know. The kind of point of this, I think, is that when we look at the law as code, when we look at doctrine as written, and we ask the question, does it advance agape? Does it advance the interest of Jesus Christ? Is it something that we approach with a mind, a heart, and a faith that are a certain way? Well, it turns out that there are some folks, especially the religious authorities, that can be using the law in a manner that is illegal. That our commitment to the law, without considering whether it advances love, without considering its effect without considering what it does for the people who are under its sway is potentially wrong, alienated, making it more difficult to achieve and edify the character of the body. And all of a sudden, at least for me, I start to see in greater detail not only why Paul simultaneously says that the law is possibly perfectible, but also says at the exact same time that the law is connected with the character of sin and death intrinsically and by nature and unavoidably. And it makes so much more sense to me why it is that Jesus absolutely loves to tell parables about what? 
people that break the law in order to fulfill it. People that heal on a Sunday or that break their religious codes to attend to a stranger on the street because the point of the new law is that the law is fulfilled and simultaneously made irrelevant by the character of love that if we are transformed by Jesus Christ in a way that makes our hearts pure and without division, our minds and our consciences attentive towards and aligned with the thing that is both beautiful and good and our faith sincere and undefined in a way that does not entail hypocrisy, then all of a sudden the point is that the law becomes what? Not relevant anymore. And that is because God is the new love and love is the new law. But to say that love is the new law is not to say that any acceptance of anything is okay because there are these three conditions that have to adhere. If we think about agape, we have to ask the question is of, is it about us and is it about the good of the other person and fidelity to the person of Jesus Christ in a way where our hearts are pure, where our minds are aligned with the beautiful good and where we are not hypocritical is the guiding principle of a Christian life well led. It becomes the foundation of a new way for thinking about how we relate to other people and relate to the law. And man, to me, at least, that is the only way to make what follows make sense. Because, and again, this is a text that doesn't pop up in the lectionary very much, but you know, if the first kind of translator sin is to not translate it literally as the law is good as long as it is used lawfully, which implies that the law in and of itself does not contain the good, but it needs to be compared to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the perfection of the law, then how do we think about this one, verse 9? We know the law is, not, is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreaker, for the rebel, for the ungodly, and the sinful, or for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which is entrusted to me. And think about the implication of it. If the point of the law is to be guidance for folks who are outside of the kingdom of God and outside of the kingdom of Christ, the reverse claim is also true and one that Paul has made before, which is that for a person who is an heir and an inheritor to the throne, to be an heir and inheritor to be the throne is to be overtaken by a kind of love that transforms us and puts us beyond the law and instead at the service of Jesus Christ, not the written code, but rather the relationship that is embodied at his cross and in his resurrection. For now, Timothy is singing the same tune that we saw in Titus. Our vision of the power of the law is perhaps unduly inflated. It expands in proportion to the paucity of our view of grace. When our view of grace is small, our view of the law has to be so big to regulate and maintain some standard of perfection. But as our view of grace expands and as our view of law expands, we start to see the continuities between law and grace as each aims at the perfection of the love that is agape and is dependent on what God gives us in order to be different to be his sons and daughters. And when finally then we can see the fullness and the all-encompassing character of that grace, we can see the limits and even the conditions of beauty for and the simultaneous brokenness of the law and all kinds of things start to fall into place. And we see why it is that Jesus loves to tell the story of the good lawbreaker. And we see why it is that Paul says things like, I don't know, no person is righteous, not even one, but each one of us is made righteous in Jesus Christ and therefore put in a position where we are also freed from the law in fulfilling it. And that 
is the point of the beautiful paradoxes of the law being good when it is used lawfully and the law only being for the lawbreaker. We can better see how as his sons and his daughters and his inheritors, we are instead freed from the conditions of law and the death. We are law and death. We are freed from the things that bind us and we are freed to live into and to love in Jesus Christ and that it is not the code or the doctrine that is the measure of good, but instead it is how each one of us is called to think individually and think together not about what? About what Jesus would do. And we do it not by looking at a list or some legal codex, but instead we doing it by keeping our eyes on and being open to and just absolutely being desirous of the presence and the spirit of the risen Lord. Because that is the new law. Amen.